Well, we're excited to announce that we have our very first sponsor. And being that we write most of our show in Heine Brothers Coffee Shops, it only made sense for them to be our sponsor. So check it out. Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, 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 Heine. Heine Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E dot com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Past and the Curious. If you're just joining us for the first time, this is a great episode. Um, It's our sixth episode. So if you like it, you can go back and listen to the others. There's more to come. We're really excited about some of the things we have planned for the future. But today, all of our stories and questions and songs are about heights. Things that are high up in the air. Things that are tall. The first story is about America's answer to the Eiffel Tower. After that, quiz time about heights. You guessed it. And uh, the third story Jason Lawrence in New York is going to read for you. It is about a man who was the most famous tightrope walker of his day. After that, the Tamerlane Trio, which is myself, Rob Collier, and Amber Estes Thieneman, will perform East of the Sun and West of the Moon. But first, here's Victoria Rival. With the enormous crash and bang of 200 pounds of dynamite, the giant wheel rattled off its axis. People watching from the ground watched as a few spokes broke off, and at those places, the circular shape began to twist and turn. In a matter of minutes, the wheel, once 264 feet tall and weighing hundreds of tons, was nothing more than a heaping pile of rubble and twisted metal. The steel would be melted and reused, but the rest was junk. It was a sad end for something that created so much joy and changed so many people's views of the world. In 1893, people lived their lives on the ground. No airplanes, no skyscrapers, and certainly no jetpacks. A few lucky people might have ridden in the basket of a balloon, but the Wright brothers were still years away from flying their airplane, and Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin was probably just dreaming about seeing his giant blip in the sky. So to see the world from a bird's eye view was a brand new experience for most people. And new experiences are why people came to a world's fair. Cities all over the globe compete for the honor to host one. And as an attendee, you might travel from days away to visit, along with millions of other people to see the newest technology, the newest products to buy, as well as artists, musicians, people from all over the world, and even a few celebrities of the day. When Philadelphia hosted one in 1876, people rushed to see the right arm of the Statue of Liberty. 
At this point, the famous statue wasn't complete, and money was needed to build the pedestal on which it stands today. So the fair organizers allowed people to climb up and walk around the torch for a charge of 50 cents. But that disembodied lady's arm was nothing compared to what Paris built for the 1889 World's Fair. There, fairgoers were invited to experience the world from 900 feet above the ground on a structure that much of Paris actually hated and tried to prevent. Ironically, today, that tower, the Eiffel Tower, is the most recognizable symbol of Paris. So when Chicago was chosen for that 1893 World's Fair, all the planners could think was, how do we top that doggone Eiffel Tower? Build a bigger one, but top it by 500 feet! Oh, bigger is not always better. It's already been done. Think creatively. Then someone actually suggested building a structure that could be used for something that sounded a lot like today's bungee jumping. Perhaps a little too dangerous and ahead of its time. Then a man from a Pittsburgh steel company had an idea. To most people, George Washington Ferris Jr.'s idea sounded as dangerous, if not more so, than the bungee jumping idea. But his was chosen, and he and a crew got to work. As they did so, smack dab in the middle of the fair, the rest of the buildings and attractions were built around them. In the end, the World's Fair was like a brand new city built right there, in the middle of Chicago. It was full of beautiful new buildings and statues. There were gardens and ponds, and at night, everything glowed with new electric lights like no one had ever seen before. When it opened, it would be flooded, not just with its artificial lighting, but with scores of people from all over the country. In addition to so many electric lights, it was the first time these scores of people would ever see such things as a moving walkway, shredded wheat cereal, Quaker oats, and juicy fruit gum. And along with piano performances by rising star Scott Joplin, it was also the first time Americans heard this song played. As a woman nicknamed Little Egypt performed belly dances. But nothing took people's breath away like the fair's answer to the Eiffel Tower. In the middle of it, standing 264 feet, carrying 36 cars, and making one complete revolution every 10 minutes was, have you guessed it yet, the world's first Ferris wheel. At first, people were terrified to try it. Perhaps this was because occasionally loose nuts and bolts would come bouncing down from the top, like chunks of hail in the springtime. But Ferris and his men built the wheel with more of those than they really needed, so who cares if it lost a few, right? Slowly, though, steely nerve folks would settle into a car and ride that wheel for the two complete times around that their 50-cent emission would allow. Soon, it became the hit of the fair. It was always packed and revolving. Over one and a half million people rode it at the Chicago Fair. It was popular at night to see the lights. It was popular in the day to see the enormous crowds. It was even popular for romance. It was common for young men to propose marriage when their car reached the highest point. 
Some people say the Ferris wheel was the reason the Chicago World's Fair was a success. They say, if not for the wheel, the fair would have lost money. But that wasn't enough to save its life. After the fair, it was moved to the north side of Chicago. Later it was sold and installed the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. But after that, boom. They blew it up with dynamite and it rode its way into the history books. But for a time, it was America's great answer to the Eiffel Tower. Think about that the next time you ride one. Or, if you're like me, the next time you stand safely on the ground and watch someone else ride it. And ask yourself this. If you were in 1893 and had never ever seen or heard of such a thing as the Ferris wheel, and you saw it for the first time, would you take that ride? It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. And you heard the song, so you know that it is quiz time. Question number one In which state? Can you find the tallest tree in the entire United States of America? Well, the tallest tree is a coast redwood tree in the state of California. Its name is Hyperion, and it is nearly 380 feet tall. California is also home to the more famous General Sherman redwood, which is the largest, but not the tallest tree. The difference has to do with volume, how much space the tree occupies with its trunk, branches, and so forth. This tree, the largest tree, was named after the Civil War general by a former soldier who served under William Sherman and who later worked as a naturalist in California. Question number two. The building, One World Trade Center in New York City, is the tallest building in the United States. Its height happens to be the same number as an important year in American history. Can you guess how high it is in feet? The height of the top floor is 1,368 feet above the ground. But when you add in the height of the antenna, the structure is 1,776 feet above the ground. The architects purposefully chose this height to reflect the importance of America's Declaration of Independence during the year 1776. And now for the third question. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. Everybody knows that. But climbing it is one of the most dangerous and difficult things that humans attempt. We don't recommend it. Still. Can you guess the age of the youngest person to reach the summit? Two people have reached the summit at the age of 13. In 2009, an American boy named Jordan Romero made it to the top. And in 2014, a girl from India, Malavath Purna, reached the summit in only 52 days. A member of a tribal family in a poor labor village Perna was selected to participate in a special program that prepared her for the adventure 
because of her intellect and physical abilities. And today, she is a role model to many other children in her region of India. And here's Jason Lawrence with our second story of the episode. What more was there to do? In the last couple of years, Charles Blondin had done nearly everything he could think of to shock the people on shore. But he discovered, once you walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls, it can be difficult to top. That first time, a summer day back in 1859, brought thousands of people, both to the Canadian and American sides of the immense series of waterfalls. Most folks were excited and nervous, anticipating the crazy event. Others were most certainly there to see the so-called Great Blondin tumble from a great height and wind up in splashes and splatters in the great bubbling chasm of water and stone below the tight wire. Alas, all in attendance would witness the Great Blondin defy death by walking 1,300 feet on a rope just two inches wide and hundreds of feet above the famous hole in the earth. But fame is a double-edged sword, friends. Blondin found it wasn't all tightrope-walking love once he completed that walk. People constantly wanted to know, What's next? Surely you've got something bigger and better in the works, right? Oh, Blondin, however will you thrill us now? Jeez, is defying death once not enough? So since then, he'd had to come up with more impressive feats to keep their attention. Once he did the entire walk in the dark of night, with only the light of two train lamps on each end of the rope. Lived. Another time he made the walk in a gorilla suit. Lived. What's next? Okay, that's not enough for you folks, Blondin thought. I'll somersault my way across the wire. And he did. And he lived. And people wanted more. He did the walk in shackles. He did the walk while carrying a man on his back. Lived both times. Now, don't get me wrong. The people loved it. But they also seemed to be saying, Listen, Blondin, this is all really cool and we're all very impressed with your balance. But we're ready to see something that we've never seen before. You know, you're not the only funambulist out there today. I should mention that Blondin was from France just like the word funambulist. That's a fancy word for a tightrope walker. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with the word fun. If you're afraid of heights like me, there would be nothing fun about walking a tightrope anyway. The word actually comes from two other older Latin words. Funus means rope, and ambulare means walk. You can figure out the rest. So the great Blondin came up with something sure to thrill the audiences and stifle any competing funambulists. He was certain of it. Word was spread and newspapers advertised the upcoming feat. And when the day came, people unloaded from train cars and steamboats by the score. Many watched from the shores, but a few lucky ones found themselves on the water beneath the rope above, on a boat known as the Maid of the Mist. They would be luckier than they knew. As the sun took its place high in the sky, people waited with breathless anticipation. Children clung to their parents' legs. People spoke in hushed tones. I hear this walk will be the greatest the world has ever seen, one lady said. I can't begin to imagine what he has up his sleeve this time, a man said to the group around him. 
I'm only here because I've bet $25 that the great Blondin will finally fall to his doom, replied a killjoy. And in an instant, he appeared at the edge of the land surrounding Niagara Falls. As he put his soft leather shoe on the two-inch rope stretched across the churning water, the world seemed to hold its breath. With a few more slow steps, people finally began to breathe and take a greater notice of his body. What was that on his back? It looked square and metal. Hmm, certainly not as impressive as carrying a person on his back. What was the meaning of this? The people watched skeptically now as he reached the middle of the rope and balanced himself far above the water below. Perhaps that man who bet against Blondin's success perked up a little bit at this point. But Blondin did not fall. Instead, he unstrapped the metal box from his back and balanced it on the rope in front of him. He crouched in front of it and began to fiddle with some small objects that people couldn't quite see. A woman on shore had a pair of binoculars and began to relate what she saw out loud. He's... Oh, he's building a fire. A fire? He'll burn the rope and fall for certain, someone cried. No, no, that box. I think it's a stove. Why, I think he's going to cook something. Oh, how splendid, Blondin. He'll cook himself breakfast. What genius! While the fire was warming up the stove, Blondin produced a bowl, a whisk, and several large eggs. Standing balanced on the line, he broke the eggs into the bowl and dropped the shells down to the water far below. With the whisk, he whipped them into a froth. Then the whisk followed down below, too. Now producing a skillet, he poured the beaten eggs in, tossing the bowl after the whisk and eggshells. And then, if you can imagine, he stood right there and cooked an omelet, just as calmly as you or I might do while standing firmly on the kitchen floor. A few minutes later, it appeared that his omelet was ready to eat. But he didn't eat it. Instead, he looked down below and caught the eye of the captain of the Maid of the Mist. Gesturing with his hand, he beckoned the boat to come closer, directly underneath where he stood on the two-inch rope. As the boat came closer, Blondin set the omelet on a tray with a napkin, fork, and knife, which he then tied to a rope that would support it without tipping over. Then slowly and carefully, he lowered the breakfast down to the boat. In a minute or so, the dangling omelet was within reach of the passengers below. They looked up at Blondin with a hint of confusion, but he simply gestured for them to eat it. So the people on the Maid of the Mist took turns sharing bites of this omelet from above, and when it was gone, they looked up and thanked the great Blondin. He bowed and began packing up the stove. A few minutes later, he was across, safe and sound. The Killjoy lost 25 bucks that day, and some lucky folks on the Maid of the Mist got a free breakfast. There were no reports on how the omelet tasted. Blondin went on to thrill audiences the world over, eventually displaying his funambulism on nearly every continent. And still today, every so often a daredevil attempts to walk across Niagara Falls, but none will ever match the offbeat and bombastic approach of the Great Blondin. Now before we go, we have one more thing for you. It's an exclusive recording of the Tamerlane Trio of a song called East of the Sun and West of the Moon kind of keeping with the theme there. The Tamerlane Trio is myself, Mick Sullivan, on mandolin and guitar, Amber S. Tastineman sings, and Rob Collier plays bass. He also did all the recording and production on the song. It sounds really great. 
The song itself is actually from 1934. It was written by a student at Princeton for a Princeton production, and it became part of the American Songbook. We hope you enjoy. East of the sun and west of the moon We'll build a dream house of love, dear Near to the sun and the day Near to the moon and night We'll live in a lovely way, dear Living on love and pale moon just you and I Forever and a day Love will not die We'll keep it that way Up among the stars We'll find a harmony of life To a lovely tune East of the sun and west of the moon sun and west of the moon Thank you for listening to The Past and the Curious, Episode 6. Look forward to our March episode, the 7th episode, all about food in addition to a story from Jason and a story from Victoria. We will also have a story read by a special guest star, Miss Damaris Phillips, a chef from the Food Network. Should be really, really fun. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and we will have a Patreon thing coming up very soon. I said something about it in the last episode, and I haven't finished it. So, you know, I've got a three-month-old who's actually sitting here right now with me as I talk. So that's kind of set me back. Um, speaking of little kids, though, you should check out kidslisten.org. That's the affiliate program, the affiliate network that we belong to. There's some great shows, science, and, and uh, uh, some great story shows. You should should check them out. Go to kidslisten.org. Um if you would like to help us until we get our Patreon account up and running, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate us, give us a review. That's how we crack into the rankings for our category. So please, please help us. 
Um, I'd also like to thank Sharon Murphy. She provided the clarinet for our belly dancing music that you heard at the very, very beginning and also um, with Victoria's story. And lastly, I would just like to remind you to be nice, learn something, and then share that with somebody else. Thanks again. <laughs>